Buy more, save more with a patio door at Pella Windows and Doors of Wisconsin. Buy three windows, save $500. Buy six, save $1,000. Buy a dozen, save $2,000 by adding a patio door. But only through April 30th. Set your free consultation now at PellaWI.com. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. The AccuNet Mortgage Talk and Text Line is open now. Give us a call at 855-616-1620. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome to the show. Thanks to Carol and Jane and Tracy Johnson and Scott Warris for filling in for me when I was on vacation last week. Good to get back. Let's get started. This story broke, I think it was Friday afternoon, and I I will be honest with you, I do not know what to make of it other than to say that people aren't asking the right questions or they're not following up accordingly. It is the story about acting Milwaukee Mayor Cavaliers Johnson brother being accused of being involved in, in this shooting. Now, let me start at the beginning. We are not our brother's keeper. <laughs> my, my brother, Scott, probably is very relieved about that. So I, I think if, if you have a, a sibling that goes out and does something really, really bad, that doesn't reflect on you. You, you can't control what your siblings do. So that's not where, where the essence of the story is. But there's a number of questions that come from this. If you haven't been following the story, apparently incident early this year, early January, where the acting mayor, Cavalier Johnson's half-brother, is allegedly involved with, with, a, with a shooting. His name is a half-brother. His name is Alvin, Alan Addison, that is. So the charges and an arrest warrant were issued for Addison on January 19th. Okay, January 19th, and he was ultimately taken into custody late last week following a, a standoff at, at a home in Milwaukee where apparently his mother showed up when the police had surrounded the place, and, and his mother is Cavalier Johnson's mother. Oh, okay, so again, you, you are not your brother's keeper. I appreciate that, but there, there are questions which I, I just – there's stuff about this story that doesn't make any sense to me. And I don't know what it really leads to other than I just don't think we're getting the whole story. It doesn't make sense because here's the deal. So the warrant is issued January 19th. So presumably Addison he's, – he's a fugitive for you know two-plus months. Okay, that, that, that's, all, that's all well and good. He's a fugitive until he's arrested. Cavalier Johnson, through his spokespeople, say that he was not aware that police were looking for his brother. He was not aware of the potential charges, didn't know anything until he read about this on social media the the day after the arrest. Okay, well, here's where I I have problems with this. And I guess I I answer this rhetorically, and it's something you'd like to hear the police department respond to as well. How could he have not known that his brother was wanted. Now, now, hear me out on this. I, if, I, I am extremely close to my brother, Scott, okay? And if my brother, Scott, were accused, I hate to even use this as an example, but if he were accused of doing something really awful and the police were looking for him, 
what's one of the first things the police would do? Well, they would go to your siblings, right? Hey, when was the last time you talked to your brother? When was the last time you saw your brother, et cetera, et cetera? And then the response would be, well, okay, I, I saw him, you know, last Tuesday night, or, you know, we exchanged texts last Saturday or whatever. Because if you're trying to find somebody who's wanted for a very, very serious crime, aren't you asking these questions? I mean, isn't that what you're doing? You're saying, okay, you're, you're going to people close to that person, including you know relatives, especially if the relative is a high-profile relative, which arguably, I mean, I'm not the mayor of the city of Milwaukee, but if my brother were accused of being a crime, it's not hard to find where I am, okay? You know, you know, noon to three, I'm sitting behind a microphone here at Radio City. You, you know where Cavalier Johnson is. It, wouldn't that be something that you would think the police would, would do, which is go to, okay, one of the siblings and say, hey, we're looking for your brother. H- have you seen him? And I guess also, as it, as it seems, apparently, at least according to some of the reports, I think it's a reasonable implication that the, the mom knew that there was something up. So if the mom knows that something's up, how, how can other family members not know? Now, my mom passed away 10, 12 years ago, miss her to this day. But, you know, when I would—I guarantee you that if my mother knew that my brother were involved in something really nefarious or were wanted by the police or whatever, she would mention that to me. So I, I guess I, I have these, these questions, which is he, he, he through spokespeople, said that he didn't know. And I'm just wondering, how, how could that be? And I guess if that's true, that he really didn't know, my question for the police chief, Jeff Norman, would be, how could he not have known? I mean, if you're looking for the mayor's half-brother in connection with a, a very, very serious event, wouldn't you have gone to, to City Hall and just kind of banged on the door and said, hey, have you had any contact with your brother? We, we're looking for him. We've got a warrant out for his arrest or something like this. And get, you, you can draw your own conclusions uh, about the significance of this. And Bob Donovan, he, he's saying he thinks there's a cover-up. I'm not prepared to say I think that there's a cover-up. I am prepared to say that this is unusual. And it doesn't make any sense to me the way it is being suggested thus far. Because my question would be, if the police looking for the acting mayor's half-brother on a very, very serious charge, if they didn't go to him and ask if he knew where his brother was or ask, hey, have you had any contact with your brother? My question for the police would be, why not? Why, Why wouldn't you do that if you're trying to, again, you know, find somebody. Wouldn't you conduct an investigation and wouldn't you start with siblings, including the prominent siblings? Now, I, I'm not prepared to say that I think Mayor, acting Mayor Johnson knew what his, that there was an arrest warrant for his brother. We don't know that. Don't know if he had seen his brother over the course of the last several months. Don't, don't know any of that type of stuff. But these are, are reasonable questions, I, I think, to ask. Does it make any difference at the end of the day when it comes to the election? I, I, I don't know. I, I don't know, and I, I'm not suggesting that I think that this is going to be an October surprise that necessarily swings the election, but it, it is odd to me in the extreme if the acting mayor was not aware that there was an arrest warrant out for his half-brother. My question again would be, why wasn't that the case? Why would the police have done what I would think to be kind of a, an in, the, the preliminary investigation? And if other members of the family knew— 
wouldn't you think that that maybe that word would have gotten back to to the mayor? I'm just saying the whole thing is very, very bizarre. I don't know that we're ever going to get to the bottom of it because one of the problems with the media in this town is nobody pushes those sort of, sort of questions to say, okay, if, if police officers, if you didn't ask the mayor where his brother was or if he had any information, why, why not? What, what happened here? A lot of unanswered questions. Don't know that we're ever going to get any answers, but that, that's the latest development in that. By the way, the election is tomorrow, not only for the Milwaukee mayor, which is the marquee spot on the ballot probably around here. Lots of school board races, an appeals court race in Waukesha and Ozaki County. We'll be talking about that over the course of the next day or two as well. When we come back, all right, we have seen what the monsters in Russia do. Where do we go from here? Stick around. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. So the upshot of that conversation is going to be, if my brother wasn't listening, somebody who knows my brother was listening, they'd call him up and say, huh, I was listening to Jeff on the radio this afternoon. He said that if you're ever involved in a shooting and the cops come to ask you about him, he's going to turn you in. Yeah, I probably would. <laughs> I forget probably. I, I, I would cooperate with the, the police. No question about that. But but that's just me. And again, I, I, I just th- – what bothers me about this is there doesn't appear to be any sort of – of follow-up that, that goes with this. And it it may very well be that uh, the acting mayor had no contact with his half-brother for five years. That, that That's entirely possible. But then wouldn't you think somebody would ask that, that question? Um, but again, that's just me. All right, let us switch gears. I, I have been fascinated with what is going on in Ukraine. And one of the positions that I have taken for the, the longest time has been it's not enough for Russia to simply stop. Russia has caused untold damage to to Ukraine. If you look just at at the pictures of of the bombings and the cities that have been destroyed, you've essentially had a a country's economy that has been devastated. We'll we'll get to the human cost in just a minute. But the country's economy has just been absolutely devastated. You've had these beautiful cities that have been turned into rubble. It, It really looks like the bombing that you saw going on in World War II. You have a humanitarian crisis of epic proportion. You have millions of people who have been forced from their home, and there's no home for them to return to. They have been made refugees and will have to figure out, you know, how to live the rest of their life, all to satisfy the psychotic ambitions of the monster who is the dictator of Russia, Vladimir Putin. All right, so that, that's, just the, that's just the economic cost. Then, of course, you have the incredible loss of life. We still don't have a handle on how many thousands or tens of thousands of Ukrainian soldiers and Ukrainian civilians who have been killed. It is very, very clear that Russia, when they they found that their military wasn't as strong as they thought it was, that they weren't going to be viewed as liberators, that they weren't going to be able to push Ukrainians out of the major cities, that they, they changed their tactics and decided to employ a strategy like Hitler used during the Blitz, which is let's try to terrorize the civilian population. All right, we're, we're not able to win militarily, so let's try to kill as many civilians as we possibly can. Let's bomb the hospitals. Let's bomb the, the, the schools. Let's go after that in an effort to 
try to, again, force the population to, to just capitulate, to, to give up their, their fighting spirit. Well, well that, that has not worked. And now what you're seeing is Ukraine military is, is pushing back. Um, Russia is recognizing that their reach, um, that, that their uh, grasp exceeded their reach. They're recognizing that, they're, at least at this point in time, they're not going to be able to take Kiev. They're retreating, and in their aftermath— we are now starting to find about what happened in some of the cities that and the suburbs that Russia occupied. And in, in one suburb, you know, now now the world is starting to see what these monsters did. The story in the New York Times says in Kiev suburb, they shot everyone they saw. With a column of Russian tanks in the Kiev suburb of Buka in the first days of the war, they thought Ukrainian soldiers, um, they were watching this. Troops opened fire on civilians. They killed a woman instantly. They're now starting to find mass graves where you have men, women, and children. In many cases, their hands bound behind their backs and shot in the back of the head. Th- these monsters were in the process of executing civilians, and now it's it's all out there for the world to see. All right, our number is 855-616-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Obviously, everybody wants to see an end to hostilities, right? That That's that that's the goal, you know, make, make it stop, get back to some sense of normalcy. President Biden is talking about uh, Putin as being a war criminal. Putin is clearly a war criminal. Many of the Russian generals and the Russian troops are clearly war criminals. So here's the point. At this point in time, do they need to be held accountable for that? Is it enough at this point to simply say, oh, Russia is going to pull back and they're going to try to, you know, occupy maybe some more disputed territory, maybe more territory they had, or do they need to be held accountable? whether it's sanctions that are put in place till Putin leaves, whether it's efforts to try to apprehend some of the Russians that are responsible and try them as war criminals, whether it is an effort to bring about regime change. Is it enough to simply say, oh, Mr. Putin, you're pulling your army back right now, so you're, you're not bombing civilians as much. That's that's enough. Thank you. Let's go back to normal. My point is there, there's that can't be it. You can't go back to the old normal anymore. There needs to be accountability for the atrocities, for the war crimes that have been committed. 855-616-1620. We discuss in a moment. 855-616-1620. Gianni in Montello. Gianni, good afternoon. Oop, I got to hit the button. Gianni, good, good afternoon. afternoon. Jeff. I'm well, thank you. What do you yeah, think? Good afternoon, Jeff. Uh, great, great, great. Is. Hey, listen, of course there have to be uh, trials and investigations and people held accountable for this, just as, as during the Balkan War, Milosevic was was uh, brought to The Hague and tried. Um, and it's going to take time, but there must be investigations. And I, I, the great irony of this, Jeff, is visit Russia, if you had visited Russia in the last uh, 30 years, you would see commemorations and statues of the Great War, not World War One, but World War Two. And when Hitler on, uh, it was uh, June 22nd, 41, went into Ukraine and, and um, perpetrated uh, God knows what war crimes. Uh, I mean, it's the Bafin SS went in. Ironically, Jeff, we are seeing the same thing perpetrated by the Russians now. And that blows my mind because it's it's 22. We, we, we are 
you know, uh, we've learned eight, nothing. Years after. No, no, Gianni. War, no, thanks for the call. Nothing. Yeah, we we it's we've amazing. learned nothing. No, you're. You know, we we've learned nothing. I, I mean, I. One of one of our very first listener trips a few years ago was on the Danube and, and started out in in Budapest, which is actually two cities, Buda and Pest, divided by the Danube, and um, that that was of course a city that was under the Soviet Union's rule until the Iron Curtain collapsed in what eighty nine. And you, I, I've told the story before. You, you talk to the people who grew up there; they hate the Soviets. I mean, they just hate everything about the the totalitarian society and and things like that. And and you're starting to to see why that that was even even with that context though the idea that you could invade a country that you could create the, the complete and total devastation to that country that you could displace millions of people and that you could murder and yes i use the word murder you could murder innocent men women and civilian dump them into in children dump them into mass graves and not be accountable held accountable by the world is actually and completely a non starter to me so if, if that's something you know, whenever everybody cringes and says, oh, we shouldn't talk about regime change and we shouldn't about talk, talk about holding Vladimir Putin accountable, my response would be, why the hell not? I mean, seriously, anybody that could look at some of those pictures that were coming out of those suburbs now that the Russians were pushed back and not recognize that there is true evil in this world needs to check their own moral barometer. So very glad to have you with us. Today, Decision Wisconsin. Please join WTMJ and 101.7 The Truth this Tuesday, that would be tomorrow, for special election night coverage co-anchored by John McCure and Dr. Ken Harris. Starting at 8, we'll be broadcasting on 101.7 The Truth FM, WTMJ.com, and the WTMJ mobile app. Join us as we give you the results of all the local races, including for the next mayor of Milwaukee. It's Decision Wisconsin. It's happening tomorrow, this Tuesday, with News Radio WTMJ and 101.7 Seven, the truth. All right. While I was gone last week, the story breaks. Uh, Daryl Brooks, he is the man uh, charged with more than 70 felony counts, including six homicide counts in connection with the killing of six people and the injuring of dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens more when he drove his SUV through a Christmas parade in Waukesha, okay? So he is now being held like he should have been held before November 21st, but now now he's being held and, and he's in jail and he doesn't like the fact that he's in jail. So he apparently has sent a, he, and he's, by the way, been whining since he was caught. Remember, this is the guy that after he kills all those people, instead of taking accountability, he goes up and bangs on somebody's door and tries to convince them to take him in and help him out and stuff like that. So he's been whining since he committed the crime. So here's the story in the Journal Sentinel. Daryl Brooks sent a letter to his mother claiming that guards paid inmates to spit in his food. He also accused guards and inmates of using racial slurs against him and threatening him with violence. He quoted a guard is saying, I hope they give this stupid blank life in prison. They're going to kill him in prison. Brooks wrote that he needs to find a way out before something happens to him and guards sweep it under the rug. A spokesman for the Waukesha County Sheriff's Department said Brooks filed a grievance with the jail over his treatment. The agency reviewed his complaints and is satisfied that he's being treated appropriately. Jail staff will continue to monitor his 
care. 855-616-1620, which is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Okay, first of all, my, my first advice to Mr. Brooks and to anybody would be that if you don't want to find yourself in a situation where I don't know, either inmates, fellow inmates, or guards, or society in general is hostile to you because of criminal activity that you engaged in, first of all, the answer is real, real simple, which is don't engage in the criminal activity. The only reason that Daryl Brooks finds himself in the situation he's in as a starting point is the fact that he drove through the he drove through the Waukesha Christmas parade, killed six people and injured dozens and dozens and dozens of other people, and now he is being held accountable. And clearly he doesn't like the idea that, you know, he's going to in all likelihood spend the rest of his life in prison. I understand why you wouldn't like that, but maybe the first advice would be don't commit these crimes. All right, having said that, there's no question about it that when when people are are held in custody, it becomes the responsibility of those who hold them, the, the prison guards, the jailers, whatever. They have an obligation to do everything they can to treat the inmates in a, in a humane fashion, even though the inmates, for example, in many cases, have not behaved in a humane fashion at all. They are entitled to, to a different level of care. So if it's true that you have a guard that paid an inmate to spit in the guy's food or something like that, that that would be unacceptable and there should be discipline there. At the same time, I am sure it is an unpleasant prison experience for Mr. Brooks. I am sure that he is not popular among the guards. I am sure that he's probably not too popular among the inmates as well. And that's probably going to be something that follows him, whether he's at the Waukesha County Jail or whether he's at Kettle Moraine or whether he's at Waupun, wherever he goes. My guess is he's not going to be on the top of the most popular inmate list simply because of the crimes that he was he has committed. My point, though, is, yes, it is completely appropriate to investigate any claims that he had, and if you find that there's some example of mistreatment, you got to deal with that, and guards need to be punished. Having said all that, I don't think I'm inclined to believe a word that comes out of this guy's mouth. Our number, 855-616-1620, which is the Accurate Mortgage Talk and Text Line. No sympathy for Mr. Brooks to begin with. If there are guards that are going outside of protocol or and, you know, doing things like spitting in his food or encouraging inmates to do that, they, they need to be identified and they need to be disciplined. But as far as this, he doesn't feel safe in jail, so he needs to get out. Sorry, my suggestion would be I think he needs to get used to it because my guess is he's going to be in jail for a long time. 855-616-1620. Sympathy for Mr. Brooks? We discuss in just a moment. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. WTMJ and Jane Matinair are teaming up with the Brewers Community Foundation to collect pet supplies for the Wisconsin Humane Society. Join Jane on Wednesday, April 13th from 7 in the morning till 5 at night outside Hellfair Field. They'll be collecting dog toys, canned and dry food for cats and dogs, cat litter, training leashes, and doggy treats. For more information, go to WTMJ.com. WTMJ Care, sponsored by Gruber Law Offices. 855-616-1620, which is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Yeah, the, the headline is Daryl Brooks, who is... 
The accused in the Waukesha parade killing says he doesn't feel safe in jail. Somebody texted me, said, well, you sound like you think he's guilty. Yeah, I think he's guilty. Absolutely, I I think he's guilty. Yes, you have innocent until proven guilty. That applies in a court of law, not the court of public opinion. And, And yes, I believe he is guilty as hell. And I will take that stand. And yes, I am not sympathetic to the fact that he doesn't like being in jail. And I would not put it past him saying anything he can to try to gender engender some sympathy for somebody somewhere in order to avoid accountability for what this career criminal did. Jeff, come on. He doesn't feel safe. Uh, my guess is you reap what you show. You know, ask the dancing grannies how they feel. Lou says, too bad, dude. Um, you know, that's it. Jeff, the story also came from his mother. She also tried to set up a GoFundMe for her son. No time should be wasted on this person or money for an investigation into frivolous accusations. Now, look, I'm, I want to be clear here. I'm sure that, that the Waukesha County Jail experience is, is not a great one. I don't think it would be great for any of us. But, but here's the bottom line. My guess is he is not a popular inmate. My guess is there are probably inmates who say things to him. Wouldn't be surprised at that at all. But, okay, that's, that's the prison environment. <laughs> Let, let's, let's face it. And my sense is that if and when he is convicted, let's put it when, when he is convicted of these horrendous crimes, my guess is whatever prison he is sent to, he's going to find himself dealing with an inmate population that's not necessarily thrilled with him, and he's going to be dealing with guards who, while professional, are going to be appalled at what he did. So I think if he expects that he's going to be welcomed somewhere with open arms, he he needs to get over that because that's just not the way the railroad is going to run in this particular case. And none of that is to say that you know, guards should be intentionally mistreating prisoners. I find it hard to believe that any of the jailers are, in fact, doing that. Jeff, hmm, he doesn't feel safe in jail. What about all the innocent people who were safely enjoying a holiday parade with other lawful people who were mowed down? He's with others of his same criminal morality. Sounds like he's earned where he's at. Yes, I think he has pretty much earned where he's at. Jeff, if Brooks doesn't feel safe, he can go into solitary confinement, right? Well, I guess that's always uh, a motion. Jeff, I find it hard to believe anything Brooks says would be true. But as for sympathy, he's the last person who I could think of who deserves any at all. Jeff, Brooks's approach is quite reactive to his prison inmates. I guess he'll have to tough it out. I have no sympathy for him at all. Yep, I think there's a lot of that type of stuff going on. And again, the object lesson of this is— Look, I I can't imagine the prison experience being a very positive one for anybody anywhere, not arguing that it would be. So maybe some free legal advice from a recovering lawyer here. Maybe the suggestion would be if you can't do the, the time, don't do the crime. And if you don't want to be behind bars and you don't want to be dealing with a hostile inmate population, it's real simple. Don't commit the crimes in the first place and then you're not going to have a problem. Now, somebody perhaps should have suggested that to Mr. Brooks earlier, but I'm not sure he would have listened even if someone did. Back with more in just a minute. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 
so very glad to have you with us. This is my first day back in the studio for a little bit after vacation and all. And it, the new computer system, new keyboard, new mouse, new screens and stuff. I, I'm still just trying to figure out my way around. It's like, my, my goodness, if you go away for six months or a year, who knows what it's going to look like. Oh, well, if you, know, you go away for six months now, it's going to look materially different because we, we still don't have a final date for when we're moving our studios, but it's getting closer. Our word is our office personnel are going to be moving downtown to the Avenue, our new facility in the old Grand Avenue building, now the Avenue. They're going to be there. People keep asking me when to move, and I, I'm I'm not... I'm not saying that it's a it's a higher pay grade. It's a different pay grade than mine. So I don't exactly know when the move's going to occur, other than I think our office staff is going to be going downtown sometime maybe at the end of this month. Maybe I'm, I'm told that the walls are starting to go up. And then the studios, the on-air people, probably um, sometime late summer, maybe, maybe August, maybe September, something like that. But we will be visible. So you're going to have an opportunity, if you're in the area, to stop off and we'll be doing the shows from glass booths. How cool is that? I, again, having been on vacation last week, I'm catching up a little bit with some news, and I wanted to just offer a couple comments on this as well. Uh, I, I, you know, we always think things are going to be forever, and then stuff happens and we're reminded they're, they're not. One of my very, very favorite restaurants in Milwaukee – is a place was a place called the the Jackson Grill, and you know when people would say to me when like my wife would say okay where, where do you want to go for your birthday or you know I, I always say I want to go to the Jackson Grill. I loved the Jackson Grill. Now this is one of the places. Whenever I sent somebody there, I said look you can't judge a book by its cover because it was it was on thirty seven thirty six West Mitchell Street, which is kind of in the middle of a commercial slash residential slash industrial area. I mean, it's not where you would expect to find a high-end steakhouse. And I'd always have to tell people, you're going to pull up, and it's going to be this little place on the corner. Trust me, go in. <laughs> and, and, and everybody that did was always very impressed. It was very, very small. I think it, it only sat about 30 people, and that might have even included, plus the bar, maybe it was 30, you know, including the bar, but very, very small, limited number of tables. It was run by a, a couple um, Jimmy and and Heidi and um, Jimmy Jackson, who passed away, oh gosh, um, about a year ago, February 11th, 2021, at the age of 66. He was the chef and Heidi was the waitress and the hostess and things like that. But this was the quintessential Milwaukee supper club. And if, if I always used to tease Heidi because... I said, what do you have to do to get your picture on the wall? Because they had pictures on the wall, but it was all sports celebrities. It was uh, The restaurant was relatively close to County Stadium and now American Family Field. So you, And it was one of Bud Selig's very favorite places. I know he used to go there on a regular basis. And you know a lot of the athletes would go there. And I'd say, well, what do you have to do to get your picture on the wall? And she'd say, well, you have to be a baseball player which you know, or, or an athlete, which kind of definitely left me out of the category. But it was just – it was it was one of the these classic Milwaukee supper clubs, and and you'd walk in and you'd have reservations and you'd go up and you'd have a drink at the bar and then they they bring you to your table and big big steaks not not a huge menu but just an absolutely tremendous menu never had a bad meal there at all. Well, you know the, the news is that, that the Jackson Grill has now closed permanently. As I mentioned, it, it was a husband and wife operation, and and Jimmy passed away last February a year ago February, and I I'm not. 
I'm not sure if it ever reopened. If it did, it only would have reopened briefly, but then it closed down again. And you, you had all these different issues that were going on. Of course, you've got you know COVID and trying to run a, a restaurant, any restaurant, is, is difficult. Then, of course, when you, when you have you know the one of the two owners, a husband and wife operation, and the, the husband you know passes away, and he was the chef and was intricately involved in the operation. That's that's a difficult sort of thing. You've got the huge problem that everybody has nowadays about trying to find help. And I think, you know, that that was certainly something that that implicated them. And then you've got all the things that are going on with prices in in this COVID world. And at at the end of the day, I think their plan was that they were going to um, try to open up at the end of March. Um, and, and then be around for the summer. But uh, I think it just got to be a bridge too far. And so they announced that they were uh, closing. And I, I, I think it's, it's one of those things where, um, first of all, the place certainly went out on a high note. There, there's no question about it, because I mean, those of us who used to go there on a regular basis just absolutely loved it. So it went out on a high note. And secondly, there is always a time for everything, and I think this kind of demonstrates it. But it also underscores something that I, I frequently say, and that is when you have the, these great restaurants that are around, a lot of times we, we think that they're just going to be there forever, and they become kind of these institutions and things like that. Oh, this is where I go for my birthday dinners. Oh, this is where we go when you know we've got some guests in town and we want to take them out for a place for a great steak and all that. And you just always assume that these places are, are going to be there. And then just like so many restaurants, over the last, you know, decade or two that have been so hot and so great. And for whatever reasons, times change or people's change and and uh, they end up closing. That's, that's what happened to the Jackson Grill. And two of the other examples I always give about that is when I was growing up around here, you had three big German restaurants in town. You had John Ernst, you had Carl Rosch's, and you had Mater's. And those were these; those were institutions, and and you always figure they were there. Well, first John Ernst closed, and then Carl Rosch's closed. And I think for a lot of us who again grew up in this time, the, the idea that you know Carl Rosch's would be closing is just something unthinkable. And yet Carl Rosch's closed, and so now of those three big German restaurants that were around in Milwaukee, you're you're, you're left with Mater's. So there's still one open. But I guess the the point of all this is. Nothing lasts forever, and it's important to you know appreciate whether it's your favorite watering hole, whether it's your favorite restaurant. It's important to appreciate these places while they're there because they're they're not always going to be there. So, um, Jackson Grill, longtime Southside Milwaukee Steakhouse, closing permanently. Um, it's another one of those places that whenever we do the topics about restaurants that are gone but not forgotten, it will definitely be at the top of my list. Lots of stuff to talk about on today's program. Don't go anywhere. We'll be back right after the news. This is Jeff Wagner. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome back to the show. All right, I want to go where angels fear to tread. There's this debate going on in the national media that has become extremely politicized. What a surprise that could be. And it involves this legislation that went through the Florida legislature and was signed by the governor down there. And and it's being billed as the 
the Don't Say Gay bill. You probably heard a lot about this. And one of the things that's interesting in this discussion is I think what the argument about is completely and totally being misrepresented. Now, let me back up to go into this. Um, first of all, whenever you talk about subjects like this, you always run the risk of being told, oh, you're, you're homophobic or you're transphobic. You know, if because, for example— I, and I've said this, you know, on, on many occasions in different topics. I have no problem at all if somebody who is born um, as a female decides that they are a male trapped in a female's body and wants to go about making the, the transition. That, that's up to them. I, I don't. I don't care. I'm a live and let live kind of guy. Now, I do think that when it comes to situations of the, for example, the, the collegiate swimmers, where you have people who are born as males um, biologically, who then you know decide to go through the transition to female, I don't think that they should be compete, able to compete against uh, people who are born as females. I have no problem with the transition at all, but you know as we've talked about, they have they have physical advantages because males and females are are different. And I think you saw this play out, for example, at the NCAA swimming tournament, where you had you know a, a woman who born as a male was sort of a an above average type of swimmer but becomes you know exceptional when above average or average when competing at the intercollegiate level against men but then you know makes the transition and then you know competes against people who are biologically born as females and, and dominates I, I just i think that that's wrong now i don't believe that makes me transphobic but that's that's it oh how dare you say these things well that, that's just kind of what i feel boys and girls are different men and women are, are different and if you want to transition go with god i don't care about that but i, I the idea that we're going to then pretend that you weren't born biologically as a male in that case, I, I just I don't think that makes any sense at all. Okay, similarly, so th- then you have whenever you want to talk about issues involving gay rights and things like that, if, if you don't buy the, the whole thing up and down, you're, you're told, oh, you've got to be homophobic or something like that. And I, I, I always do this lead-in. Nothing could be farther from the truth. I don't care. I mean, I don't care what people's sexual orientation is. I Growing up, I had a couple of really close friends who were gay. No big deal. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't matter. I don't care about any of those sort of things. However, that's not what's involved in this Florida law. Now, here's what the Florida law says. And again, the headline is, it's the don't say gay bill. Well, nowhere in the law does it say you're not supposed to mention gay. What it it talks about, and and this is the most significant paragraph, and this is the part I want to talk about, because there's other aspects of it that kind of go into the weeds. But this is what's getting all the attention. There's a provision in this law, and this is what it says. Classroom instruction by school personnel or third parties on sexual orientation or gender identity may not occur in kindergarten through grade three. Let me read that again. Classroom instruction by school personnel or third parties on sexual orientation or gender identity may not occur in kindergarten through grade three. Now, let me stop for a minute there. Okay, it, it doesn't, it, what it says precisely is that kindergarten through grade three, as part of the curriculum, you know, it shouldn't include gender identity or sexual orientation, right? So here's my my first question. Does does anybody really think that's wrong? 
I mean, I guess the flip side is, is there anybody who seriously thinks that for kindergarten through third grade, as part of the curriculum, we or schools should be teaching sexual orientation or gender identity? See, my, my argument would be, regardless of where you, you fall in, in this category, that that's an inappropriate, those are inappropriate subjects for kindergarten, first, second, and, and third grade. Uh, what's, what's third grade, like eight, nine, maybe eight or nine years old? I mean, is there really anything wrong with that? Is that that controversial? I would argue that for kindergarten through third grade, we should be teaching people how to read and how to write and basic arithmetic skills and, and things like that. So the first part of the law says, first, a kindergarten through third grade, no instruction on sexual orientation or gender identity. It then says, um, or— Classroom instruction by school personnel or third parties on sexual orientation or gender identity um, may not occur in kindergarten through grade three or in a manner that is not age appropriate or developmentally appropriate for students in accordance with state standards. So no instruction, kindergarten, first, second, third grade. And then if you want to teach sexual orientation or gender identity— Fine, but it has to be done in a manner that is not age-appropriate or developmentally appropriate for students in accordance with state standards. That, so that's what the law says. So you've got to develop the state standards. Now, that doesn't say you can't teach human sexuality. It doesn't say that you can't, as part of human sexuality classes, you, you can't you know, talk about sexual orientation or gender identity. It doesn't say that you can't say gay. It doesn't say that you can't you know, teach about different things. It just says that third grade, above third grade, it has to be done in a manner that is not age up that, that it can't be done in a matter that is age inappropriate. O- okay. 855-616-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Now, I understand that this, this law gets all this attention and everybody that talks about it, oh, this is appalling. Well, the Wall Street Journal has an editorial today. Um, there, there's a poll out, and one of the polls, Public Opinion Strategies, does this poll. And what they do is they go out to people and, and they do what I just did. They read them the actual language of the Florida law. All right, and they say, okay, this is what this says. Forget about the way this is labeled. Forget about all the screaming. This is what this says. And they say, all right, do you agree with it or not? Here's the interesting thing. 61% of the people say they supported the law. 61%. 26% said they opposed it. Here's the other interesting thing about it. Support crosses across political lines. Democratic voters in the poll supported the law 55 to 29 percent. Among suburban voters, it's 60 percent to 30 percent. Parents, 67 percent to 24 percent. Biden voters, 53 percent to 30 percent. Respondents who know someone LGBTQ, 61 percent support, 28 percent oppose. Our number is 855-616-1620, which is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Now, I understand we, we hear all this conversation, oh, this is preventing conversations about talking about gay, and this is going to make people feel all, you know, uncumbered and things like that. Well, I, I don't know. The, the heart of this is no instruction on sexual orientation below the age of, uh, below the age of like eight. I don't think that's unreasonable. And then above third grade, they say you, you can teach 
sexual orientation. You can teach gender identity, but you just have to do it in a manner that is age-appropriate in accordance with whatever standards they're going to develop. 855-616-1620. Is there anything wrong with this? We discuss in just a moment. 855-616-1620, which is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Look, I just... I, one of the frustrations I have is is you, you're hearing all this conversation about oh the peop, evil people in Florida that that have the the they're they're homophobic and they have the the, the don't say gay bill. Well, okay, I, I think look, I understand. There's people on both sides of this issue who want to play partisanship partisan politics for this to advance their own causes. But I think it's important to look at what what the bill actually says. Now, by the way, there's some aspects of the bill that I, I have issues with. It it gives, for example, it gives parents the right to file complaints independent of the school board. I'm not sure how I feel about that. But but the essence of the bill, first of all, it never says that you can't discuss sexual orientation in, in schools. Matter of fact, to the contrary, it says that kindergarten, first, second, and third grade, school personnel are not permitted to um, teach sexual orientation or gender identity. That's third grade and below. And for fourth grade and up, you can teach it, but you have to do it in a manner that is not age inappropriate or developmentally appropriate for students in accordance with state standards. So you develop the, the standards. Now, I, I, look, I don't claim to be an educator. I don't, I don't know, for example, at what age it becomes age appropriate to start to teach about gender identity issues. I, maybe it's fifth grade. Maybe it's seventh seventh grade, maybe it's ninth grade. I, I don't know. But but you figure that out, and then you, you end up plugging it in. I, I do say, though, I mean, I have no problem with saying to third, second, first graders and kids in kindergarten that I just don't believe sexual orientation. I don't believe, you know, reproductive stuff. I don't believe that that should be on the agenda for the young kids. They haven't hit puberty. What is the purpose of doing that? Don't we want to, at least at those young ages, shouldn't we be concentrating on things like reading and writing and arithmetic, recognizing that to the extent it is the school's role to teach um, issues related to sexual orientation or human reproduction or whatever, that there's an opportunity to do that later. 855-616-1620. Jeff, per Wikipedia, okay, whenever they text me and cite Wikipedia, it's always a little bit troubling, but per Wikipedia, human sexuality classes typically start in fifth grade discussing puberty and reproduction. Why on earth would sexual orientation or gender identity start sooner? Yeah, that's, you know, that's kind of, you know, my point about this. So why would this be controversial? Um, I wouldn't, couldn't we all, like, agree that this is probably a, a good time? Jeff, recently retired elementary teacher here. So many politicians love to attach themselves to hot-button issues that people are sure to get emotional about. Is this really a big problem in the younger grades in Florida? Um, I suppose it's easier to pass on policies like this than to deal with more important problems like crime, drug use, etc. Right, and I, I guess I, and I understand I understand why if people want to say, hey, folks are, are playing politics, the Republicans are trying to pass this bill because they're trying to pander to a certain segment of their population, and you make the same argument to to all the liberal commentators out there who are outraged about this, saying, okay, that this is homophobic or this is transphobic or, or whatever, and you're trying to you know prevent any sort of discussion of sexual orientation in the schools, which is the furthest thing from the truth. That's not what this bill does. It's simply— 
says, okay, when we're teaching issues like this, which are controversial, the teaching has to be age appropriate. The better argument to me about this would be once they develop the state standards to, to argue about, okay, at what point in time, at, at what grade, if you feel it necessary, if you feel it's appropriate to teach classes on sexual orientation or on gender identity and things, at, at what at what stage is it appropriate? Is it fifth grade? Is it seventh grade? Is it ninth grade? When does that come into play? As opposed to trying to argue that we, we should be teaching second and third graders about gender identity and sexual orientation. 855-616-1620. Let's talk to Scott in South Milwaukee. Scott, good afternoon. Hi, uh, hi Jeff. My, yeah, my comment echoes your, your, your last text message, but like I said, in, in this whole debate, I mean, on the surface, I mean, the bill as written sounds le- sounds legitimate, sounds legitimate, but throughout this whole debate, I mean, we have not heard from a professional educator who teaches at the K through three level in terms of number one, is this topic even discussed at the K through three level? And if this topic is discussed at the K through three level, what are the educational goals and objectives for teaching this topic at the K through three level? So, like I said, determine if they are valid and if they are valid and relevant. Again, my take on the surface with this topic is that this is that this topic isn't even discussed at the K through three three level more than likely, and and that this bill is just a a bill whatever to fix a problem that doesn't even exist that some politician is using whatever for political for political gain to to whip up the base. And and that could very well be, but then isn't the same thing true from the other side who is I mean I, I have I have story in front of story in front of story. New York Times, Washington Post, one after another talking about how terrible this is and how homophobic this is and you know the Disney employees are go- threatening to go on strike because Florida has this. Isn't can't you make the same argument that on the left they're using this to whip up their base as well? Yes. Fair enough. And that and and that's why yeah, and, and that's why my take is that I would love to hear from a professional educator who teaches at the K through three level on whether or not this is even a relevant topic or if this is it does whatever these are topics that are even discussed at the K through three level, because my guess is that the K through three level these are not even topics that are even discussed. Well, because I, I mean, Scott, thanks, because I can't imagine a situation where where this this would be uh, appropriate. And and again, to me, if if you want to find a controversial aspect to this bill, it, it's it's really two things. It's first of all, it's the fact that they give parents a direct right of action. You know, that it's one where the parents can enforce this. And and secondly, that people say that it it is vague because it doesn't specify, for example, if you're going to teach sexual orientation at what level you what what grade does that become appropriate? And I I don't I don't know enough to have a particular position about that. But I guess when when you hear all this hullabaloo about this, I I do raise two issues. I mean, first of all, I don't think there's anybody out there who really can convincingly argue that third grade and under, that this should be a matter of curriculum. And and secondly, I don't think there's anybody who would really argue that if you are going to teach issues like this to grades above that, that the instruction should be age appropriate. And and that's really what this is. So if you're on the left and you want to say the Republicans are pandering, maybe there's something there. If you're on the right, you want to say the the intelligence on the left is pandering, you're definitely right there. I'm just looking at the, the basis of the bill. If you want to consider it, take a look at what it really says and just don't buy into this hype because the, the don't say gay bill doesn't say you can't say gay. 
at least doesn't say you can't say gay or you can't teach sexual orientation, at least to fourth graders on up. Back with more in just a minute. Don't know if you saw this over the weekend. She's back. Sarah Palin, former Alaska governor and Republican vice presidential candidate, says she plans to run for Congress. Um, She's going to be one of the Republican candidates. Don Young was the um, Republican representative who represented Alaska for forever. He passed away last month. So this is, um, it's kind of an open, it's going to be an open primary. Um, There's going to be about, they estimate about 50 candidates are going to be running to fill that spot. Um, But Sarah Palin is one. And my understanding is she is, either has been or will be endorsed by Donald Trump. So it's, Guess I, if I'm thinking, if I'm Sarah Palin, I, do you do you want to be in Congress? I mean, you know that the thing about Congress is you're one of 435 representatives in the House of Representatives, and and some people, I, I know Sarah Palin. I think in her mind, I think she thinks she's bigger than that. I, I just I can't figure out how she's going to adapt to being even if she gets elected to being one of 435 people, but. Nevertheless, for people who think that there's no second act or third act or fourth act in American politics, Sarah Palin is back. I'm Jeff Wagner. Coming up next, it might be the dumbest law ever. I know the significance of what I just said. I stand by my comment. I'll explain. We'll discuss. Okay, now that was a pretty big statement before the, the break. It, it's, it's, it's the dumbest law ever. I stand by that statement. Now, if you're a regular listener, and this is not, this is not a Wisconsin law, all right? We, we have our, our own share of dumb laws. If you're a regular listener, for example, you know that I think our, our minimum markup law, otherwise known as they, they call it the Unfair Sales Act law, if, if that law were any more anti-consumer and any dumber, it would oink. I mean, I have just this is the law that says it, it goes back to the Depression and it says that, for example, with gas, you, that you cannot sell gasoline at cost. You cannot sell gasoline below cost um, for various types of food. You can't sell it at cost. You can't sell it below cost. Um, so as a result, when, when you see like around Thanksgiving, when you see these, these circulars, if you live in Kenosha and, and you'll see a circular that comes out of one of the Chicago papers advertising Thanksgiving deals at like Walmart or Target or something like that in their food thing, it's different in Chicago and across most of the country than it is in Wisconsin because Wisconsin, you, you can't sell stuff below cost. So you might say, Jeff, well, why did places sell it below cost? Well, you do it as a loss leader. You say, okay, we're going we're gonna to sell turkey. You, know, you, you can come in and you can buy turkey for however much a pound you sell for turkey, and we're going to sell it at our cost because even though we're not going to make money on turkey, we know that the people are going to buy canned peas and they're going to buy cranberry sauce and all that stuff, so we'll make it up there. The, the same principle is true with, with gasoline. Why would you sell it below cost or at cost? Well, you sell it then because you think that, okay, um, they're, they're going to buy gas, and when they stop in to buy gas, they're going to come inside the convenience store, and they're going to buy cigarettes, and they're going to buy lottery tickets, and they're going to buy beer or whatever, and we'll, we'll make it up. We want to get people in the door. That, that's what the thinking is. The justification for this law that I said goes back to the Depression was this fear of, of monopolies. If we allow – when there's only – like a couple gas companies in, in, the, in the United States, if we allowed one of the big gas companies to sell gasoline below cost, they would 
this is in theory. It really never happened in reality, but it was the economic theory. You'd run people out of business. There's three gas stations in Watertown. Somebody comes in, they um, undercut prices of the other two, close, and then they raise their prices. That that was the argument. It never happened in real life. And it certainly, if it didn't happen in 1939, it wasn't going to happen in 2022, where there's just all this competition that's out there. So I I just, but what happens is you have these business associations that are incredibly powerful, and they don't want to do things that are going to perhaps reduce their profits. So as a result, you know, legislators, both Republicans and Democrats, they're they're afraid to argue with them. They don't want to make the, the grocery association upset or whatever, so we don't get change, and it's the consumers that get shafted. Okay, so that's that, that, that's the minimum markup law in Wisconsin. This law I'm going to tell you about, in my opinion, is even more dumb than the minimum markup law. Did you know that in New Jersey, it is illegal to pump your own gas? Self-service gas stations are illegal and have been illegal in New Jersey since 1949. It, New Jersey is the only state in the country and maybe one of the only places in the world where you cannot have self-service gasoline. Where, um, matter of fact, there's this um, – the, um, it, it's, it's also – it's viewed as a badge of honor. Apparently, there's like people wear T-shirts that say – women wear T-shirts that proclaim Jersey girls don't pump gas. And that's the way they do it in New Jersey. Now, you might say, well, well, why why was this? Well, again, it, it goes back 1949. You had the, the gas industry was trying to protect itself, and so they wanted this protectionist thing that would make it more difficult for competition to come in. And so they, they passed this law, and the the law, I guess there, there's a lot of people in New Jersey that like the idea of this. So there are no self-service gas pumps in New Jersey. So what does that mean? Well, first of all, it means that your chances of being able to stop and get gas at 2 o'clock in the morning are are slim to none because there's very, very few gasoline stations that are open 24-7. So, uh, you know, nowadays, I don't know, if you're you're, you're driving somewhere and, you know, you're you're driving and it's late at night and you need gasoline, you you can pull into a place and it's self-service pump. You pull out your credit card, you put the credit card in, you fill up your gas tank, right? No no problem. And then then you go on your way. Well, in New Jersey, there's not a lot of places like that because if you have gas pumps, the gasoline pumps have to be staffed. And we all know what's going on with staffing nowadays. If you run a gas station or a convenience store or whatever, you're, you're lucky if you can find somebody, you know, it, midday, you're lucky if you can find somebody that's willing to work behind the counter, much less be an attendant that's willing to go out and pump gasoline. Well, you do it, you know, two o'clock in the morning, you know, good luck trying to do that. All right, here's the interesting thing about this this law, though. It has widespread support from the voters, especially Democrats. I'm looking at a story in the New York Times. Um, 
And again, you, they do these polls, so you take the polls with a grain of salt. But my my thinking is there has to be some degree of accuracy in this because otherwise this law, which goes back to 1950, would have been tossed out. Recent Rutgers-Eagleton poll found that 73% of New Jersey residents surveyed said they preferred having someone else pump their gas. Roughly 82% of Democrats preferred self-service, 64% of Republicans, 90% of women said they would rather have an attendant pump their gas compared with 55% of men. Our number, 855-616-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I admit I, I find this to be fascinating, and I'm trying to understand. Maybe it's just because everywhere i mean i i can remember when i first started driving i mean i can remember the that that their self-service pumps were kind of a novelty and i guess that says how old i am but i mean a lot of the gas stations you'd go to they'd have self-service pump and then you'd have the pumps that that had the attendants that would come out and they'd pump your gas and yes they'd wash your windshield and if you wanted you check your oil and things like that that was that was when i was a kid i think it was before i was driving and pretty soon because you have to pay for people to, to do that, and that helps contribute to the rising cost of gas, that the general thinking was, let's go to self-service pumps. And now I know there's a handful of stations around, for example, the Milwaukee area, that, that you can find a self-service pump. But you have to really, really, really look for it. Our number, 855-616-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Can you imagine going back to the days of not pumping your own gasoline? Is there any reason why government should make you have to use an attendant as opposed to allowing you to pump your own gasoline? Is this one of the dumbest laws ever? 855-616-1620. We discuss in a moment. So look at these poll numbers. 78% of women in New Jersey say they are opposed to self-service gas. 78%. I'm I'm willing to bet that you you could take 10 women just randomly picked off the street, and and you couldn't get 78% of them to agree with anything. I don't mean to be sexist about it. Take 10 men. 78% agree on anything, and and you have almost 8 out of 10 that don't don't want self-service gas. Now, here's the other really, like, interesting tidbit. Even with no self-service gas, with you have to have an attendant, um, the price of gas in New Jersey is a few cents less than the price of gas in, in New York. Uh, go, go, go figure, 855-616-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. All, all that being said, this is one of these laws which makes absolutely no sense to me at all. One of our texters says that he travels to New uh, Jersey frequently, and one of the problems is you always have lines for gas because, let's say, even if you've got you know one of those stations where you've got eight pumps. You know the you know eight pumps. If if they've only got two attendants, they have they they have to close off two of those lines. Who said filling up a tank of gas in New Jersey is always a huge project because there's almost always going to be lines because it's not like you just pull in, you jump out, you put your credit card in the machine, and then you you fill up. This is one of these laws that just makes absolutely no sense to me. But it is incredibly, I guess, popular, particularly among women, but but also among men to an extent in New Jersey. Let's start with uh, Dave. Dave, you're on WTMJ. Yes, I had an interesting 
thing happened last summer. I was driving from my daughter's in Carson City through California on up the coast to uh, Washington, stopped in uh, Redding, and was greeted by a guy coming out to my truck to pump my gas, and uh, and I felt kind of honored and <laughs> asked him about it, and he said, oh, yeah, California, uh, all over the state, as well as New Jersey. Hmm. I, I don't. Um, thanks for calling. I, I don't. I don't know. Maybe there's communities in California, but you. I mean, California. I know. I, I mean, because I've been, you know, to California on, on occasions, and I, I know that there's. I don't know that it's a state law that that mandates it. Maybe there's communities that have it. And again, I'm not. I, I'm. I have no problem with. Um, I have no problem with um, if if a business wants to offer this because I mean I, I I can see where some people would be willing to pay extra for for that service and, and that's like I say when I started driving that's what I can remember it being first of all it was mostly full service and then you had the occasional self service pump and now it's gradually gone to mostly self service but you can still find a little bit of full service around and and if you're willing to pay more for it that that's great that's that's a business choice that the business makes I just find it interesting that you'd have the government telling you that you you can't you you can't have self service gasoline, and so many people uh, apparently not only not only supporting this, but militantly supporting it. Jersey girls don't pump gas, huh? Let's talk to uh, Trevor. Trevor you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Afternoon, Jeff. How are you? I'm good. What do you think? Good. Um, so I've had an issue uh, with this actual this actual law in another state like Oregon. Um, where uh, if you have maybe a truck with a trailer or some equipment behind it, uh, waiting for that gas station attendant um, to, to that really is the sole person that can pump your gas can, can sometimes lead to uh, a huge scheduling issue in your yeah. day, uh, especially if they only have a few attendants in a long line. Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah, I mean, it, it's, again, it's one of these things that, and especially nowadays, where you're having trouble finding, you know, attendance. You, people can't find help. <laughs> you know, so, you know, plus, as I was talking about earlier, what, what are the chances of being able to open all night? It, it's just not going to happen. You you know, you're you're driving overnight, or you want to get a head start, and you're driving through New Jersey, you better fill up, because you're not going to find a gas station that's open at 3 o'clock in the morning for somebody to pump your gas. It's just not going to happen. Absolutely, absolutely. And that's the same issue I've ran into in the past. Yeah, no, thanks for the call. Appreciate it. Yeah, a couple of our texters are, the caller was making reference to California. Oregon does not have a state law. Apparently, well, there, there some counties in Oregon allow self-service. Some counties in Oregon maintain, uh, mandate full service. But, but it, New Jersey is the only one where it's kind of statewide. But again, I just don't, this is one where I don't even understand the purpose behind the, the law, unless it is to, I don't know, keep full employment for gasoline attendants. But I mean, in, in I mean, in today's day and age, is there really okay? The guy that's pumping the gas or the gal that's pumping the gas don't don't you think that there's all sorts of other jobs that she she could be or he could be doing at the same time? This is just one of those laws that I just think is nuts. John on the north side, John, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Hey, Jeff, how you doing? Man, you take me way back. <laughs> I can remember my, my dad pulling over in the, in the gas station, give me $3 worth of ammo. And the guy would come out, 
You have the um, yeah. I mean, they, they wouldn't sell sandwiches in a gas station, potato chips, none of that stuff. You know, only gas. You know, or oil. He checked oil. Right. You know, so you take me way back then. <laughs> do you, do you that's, that's, uh, John? Do you, you remember? Know, it was do you remember green stamps? Do you remember green stamps? As long as we're going way back. Man, yes, sir. Yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yes, I remember green. <laughs> yeah, I know that. No, no thanks. That book up, you know. Right. No, that was. I mean, thanks for 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 people who thanks for calling John. For people who don't know what John and I are talking about. And this is this is even I was a kid, so this is really before my. What would happen is you you pull into well, I I think you could get green stamps at, at all sorts of stores and stuff, but also at gas stations. You'd go in, you'd buy ten dollars worth of gas, and back in the day, you know, five dollars worth of gas, you could probably fill up your tank. That that's that's how this worked. And then what they would do, in addition to giving your gas and checking your oil and washing your windshield, what they would do is they would give you green stamps. And you would take the, and that, that's exactly what they were. They were green and they were stamps. And you would take the green stamps and you would put them in books. And then once you filled X number of books, you could redeem them for crap. <laughs> it's kind of what it is. It, you know, it'd be one of these, you, you get X number of, I mean, and I, and I, I just, I, I, it's been so long, I don't remember. But it would be it would be crap, you know. And you you could go, you could go, you get X number. You you got a dozen books of green stamps, and I and then you could take it in, and you could get like I, I don't know a little transistor radio or something like that back when they had transistor radios. But that that was that was the the day, and that's the way things used to be. And green stamps went the way of the dinosaur, and self service gas stations went the way of the dinosaur. Except in New Jersey, where Jersey girls and Jersey guys don't pump gas. Yeah, here, here's a history lesson. Yeah, the S&H Green Stamps. There was Sperry and Hutchinson. That's where the S&H came from. And it, you, you'd get these books, and it was 50 green stamps per page, 24 pages. So each book contained 1,200 stamps. And you'd accumulate the stamps, and then they had catalogs or they had places you could go. And like I, said, I can remember my grandmother in particular as a kid growing up. She'd, she'd have stacks and stacks of the, these green stamp books. And like, like I say, you, you, know, you, you have books and books and books, and you go in, you get a toaster or something like that. They kind of disappeared in the very, very early 70s because of a lot of problems, a lot of like issues and stuff. But, yeah, that takes you back. SNH Green Stamps. Um, it was one of the first customer loyalty things nowadays. Well, you don't have to put stamps in books. You just put in your card. You get your points. You redeem them. All right. We'll be back with lots more in just a couple of minutes. Don't go anywhere. This is Jeff Wagner. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. You know, these kids might have a point. But last week, there were a couple stories out about this group of MPS kids who were demanding what they call food justice. Um, The group calls themselves, yes, youth empowered in the struggle. Yes, that would be food justice. And and I admit, when when I first saw the headline, it was kind of one of those involuntary eye rolls. It's like, okay, here you got a bunch of these kids that are demanding food. But but actually, hear me out here because there's a larger point in this. So the, these are MPS kids who, what are they complaining about? They're complaining about their school lunches. And the, the basic argument is that the school lunches we are being served by MPS are crummy and, and they need to be better. Now, here's the interesting point about this, to put it all in perspective. In this country— the government spends about $13 billion a year 
on on the school lunch program, and then when you when you add in the breakfast, it goes up a little. But let's just let's work with thirteen or fourteen B as in billion dollars, just for the sake of argument. And whenever we talk about this, we we always I hear from lots of people who are saying, and I don't really disagree how how important this is, and if 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 the, the parents are either unable to or unwilling to, you know, feed their, their kids, it becomes the responsibility of the village to make sure that they get at least one or maybe in the case of breakfast, you know, two, two decent meals a day. Now, part of my complaint about all this has been, number one, I think I have no problem at all with the government, the taxpayers, that would be us, um, paying for school lunches and breakfasts for, for kids in need. I, I do have an issue with if mom and dad are both doctors in Waukesha County, you know, pulling in four or $500,000 a year, I do not understand why the taxpayer should have to pick up the tab for their kid's lunch. Okay, that, but that, that's not where we're going with this conversation. But okay, I, I understand you have to have the, the lunch and the breakfast. The, my other point, though, is if we're going to invest all this money, don't we need to live in, in reality and say, okay, let's, what, what actually happens in a school lunchroom? What, what are they really being served? What are they doing with the food? Because otherwise, if, if you're just putting food on a plate and the kids aren't eating it for whatever reasons and it's going in the garbage, that, that literally is throwing money into the garbage. So here's the story. So you got this group of, of kids from MPS. They call themselves, yes, they have this, this rally. And they're arguing for food cooked fresh in the school, accommodations for religious and cultural dietary needs, higher wages for cafeteria staff, and more. One of the kids says, we're here to demand food justice in our schools. Quality, nutritious lunches are critical to our success as students. Um, They identified what they call poor quality of school lunch is the most pressing issue that must be addressed to improve our school environment. Now, this is this petition. Let me, let me stop there. I, I, school lunches are important. Don't get me wrong. The most pressing um, issue to address to improve school environment, well, maybe it would be violence in the schools. You know, maybe it would be, you know, lack of, of learning and things like that. But, okay, they, they say school lunch is the most important thing. All right, so this is their beef. They say, District in, in MPS, the district cooks lunches at a central kitchen. It then sends them to the individual schools where they are reheated. The result is undercooked food and substandard quality. It's not acceptable. So what they want is they essentially want every MPS school to essentially have its own kitchen and to prepare presumably it, its own food, if not from scratch, you know, on on premises that are there. Uh, let's see. I'm looking at a story in, in um, urban Milwaukee. Last September, images showing food served to MPS students surfaced online, including a gray-green hamburger patty with no bread and a side of carrots. One of the posts compared the meal to a picture allegedly of a lunch served at the county jail. Um, in a Channel 4 news report, they showed a breakfast for students, including a package of graham crackers and sugary cranberry raisins. There's also the notorious mock chicken leg, which was once served at MPS, a breaded pork chop vaguely shaped to look like a, a chicken leg. When we've talked about school lunches before, um, I, I know a number of you have, have reached out to me and said that the school breakfasts, that the, what you get for school breakfast is you get a little thing of milk and they give you a Pop-Tart, which— 
to me, I got nothing against Pop-Tarts, don't get me wrong, but if that's the idea of a nutritious breakfast, well, I, I think we, we need to re-examine that. But anyhow, the, the, these kids are saying, okay, this is, this is what we need, and, and this is what the problem is, and we get lousy food, and it's undercooked, and it's reheated, and it's all these things. Now, my first reaction, admittedly, was kind of roll my eyes and say, okay, well, everybody likes to complain about the food they're being served. At the same time, we, that is those of us who pay taxes, all of us, we're, we're paying $14-plus billion with the idea that we are going to be giving kids food in, in schools. And I think one of the things that is very, very apparent is a lot of the food that's being given to kids in schools it is completely and totally wasted. It's either inedible because of the way it's prepared or because of the nature of this or because in reality it's not what you know kids are going to eat. The average average elementary school school lunch costs about two dollars nationwide costs about like two dollars and fifty cents the average school that's the school breakfast the average school lunch costs somewhere between 250 and, and three bucks but but that's a lot of money that's being spent our number is 855-616-1620 that's the acunet mortgage talk and text line now look i, I think Sometimes you, you want to take these young people aside and you want to say, look, I appreciate your zeal, but there, is, there are certain realities that you've got a lot of schools that don't have kitchen facilities and, and aren't going to be equipped to you know, make lunches or breakfasts from scratch. And even if they had the kitchen facilities to do that, they're not going to have the, the staff that, that's going to be able to do it. So you, you do need to have some sort of centralized system. And, and while ideally you, you'd love to have you know, the meals that are served not being stuff that's reheated or things like that, that that's, that's just not practically going to be able to happen. But as far as the idea of if we're going to serve the food to the kids, don't we have an obligation to make it food that the kids are going to eat as opposed to just, well, okay, the rules say you've got to have a serving of green beans. Well, okay, there, there's no 12-year-old in the world that's going to eat green beans. So here we're going to put the green beans on their plate, and they're going to say we, we've served them, and 80 to 85 percent of the kids are going to take those green beans, and they're going to stay in the little tray, and then they're just going to get thrown in the garbage. 855-616-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. If we are going to commit to the school breakfast and the school lunch program, and I don't think that's a bad thing. Don't we have to take a hard look at what we are actually serving and figure out a way to make it things that the kids will actually eat? 855-616-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. And interestingly enough, this might be kind of a starting point because I think think we we maybe need to look at the whole school lunch program and and take a, a big look at this from above and decide, are we really accomplishing things? Because giving kids stuff that they're not going to eat doesn't solve the problem. It might be virtue signaling, make everybody feel good about it, but it's not solving a problem. And if the idea is a nutritious breakfast, for example, giving a kid a Pop-Tart and a chocolate milk, that's not doing it. 855-616-1620, we discuss. Jeff, giving kids what they want is not sol- what they want to eat is not solving the problem. If you heard of childhood obesity and diabetes, okay, let's take a step back and let's ground ourselves in reality. Giving kids food that they aren't going to eat 
because they don't like it, because it's not cooked properly, because whatever. That doesn't solve the problem either because they're going to throw it out. So, no, I, that's my point where I'm saying, okay, giving somebody a Pop-Tart and some chocolate milk and claiming that this is a nutritious breakfast is, is ridiculous. But just giving kids food, and this is what they're saying, these, these MPS kids are saying, the food they're getting, they're saying it's, it's not edible. It's not what we want. That's why you have to figure out a way to serve them meals that are nutritious but yet, you know, aren't, are, but but that they're going to eat, you know, maybe it's vegetarian lasagna or something. I, I I don't know. But to simply say, well, you know, we don't care if they like it or not. Well, that's dumb because if they don't like it, they're just going to throw it out. And if they just throw it out, then all you've got is virtue signaling. Now, somebody else texts me and says, well, if they're if they're not eating it, they must not be hungry. Well, no. What what happens is they get it, they don't like it, they throw it out, and then they stop off at the quickie mart on the way home from school and fill up on host this cupcakes or whatever that this stuff would be out there. No, you, you have to you have to give them stuff that they like. But the idea that well we we're going to put it in front of them and we expect them to eat it, why bother? 855-616-1620 because they're not going to do it. Joe in Greendale. Joe, you're on WTMJ. Yeah, you know, just to eliminate uh, you know the waste and so on and so forth. Um, I think what they should do is survey the kids during the school year, give them, you know, like a survey that has maybe three or four different entrees on it, three or four different vegetables, and uh, let them vote. Let them see what the majority of the kids would like to see on their plate. Mm-hmm. And that way, at least you could say, hey, you kids are the ones that decided on this. So here's your choices. Not that they could have a wide open menu. Yeah. But here's your choices, and, uh, you know, fill it out, turn it into your teacher, and we'll uh, survey everything and see how that comes out. Yeah. I, think, I think you'd get a lot of happier kids, and also I think you'd eliminate a lot of lot of things in the garbage can. Well, right. And look, and I understand, Joe. I mean, some people are, I'm getting these texts saying, well, you know, if you, if you, if you give them what they want, all they're going to want is like pizza and chicken nuggets and things like that. And that's why you, you can't let, you, you, you have to, you have to have some limits on it. You can't serve pizza every day or things like that. And you have, but you, but at, the, but, but at the same time, if, if all you're doing is giving these kids cold, bland food that they're not going to eat and they just throw it out, we're just wasting money. And I guess I, I hate the idea of wasting money. Well, I mean, the, the point is that you control the menu still, but you give them choices. Right, exactly. So, no, th- you know, no, thanks for calling. And you have to, and maybe you have to invest it, and maybe you have to, you know, invest in in the healthier options. Now, again, some of the stuff, and I, and I appreciate the zeal of these young people, some of the stuff, like I say, is naive. Well, we, we, we don't want it made in a central kitchen and then delivered. Well, we, we'd rather have it made, you know, on premises. Well, well, that's that, that's that's wonderful, but my guess is there's all sorts of real limitations when you're dealing with any school system and take a school system like MPS. My guess is there's a lot of schools, MPS schools, that don't have the facilities to make you know, lunch and breakfast every day, and even if they had the facilities, they're just not equipped to hire the, the personnel. So you have to have, like, those centralized kitchens that send the, you know, stuff out. But but you have to, you have to figure out a balance because what we're doing now, it certainly doesn't sound like it's working. And, and 
I, I hate the virtue signaling. See, I, I don't mind. I don't mind spending the fourteen billion dollars on the student lunch program. That that that's great. I, I appreciate the idea. You you know you want kids to have good nutritious meals, but at the same time you have to have that balancing act because just saying, well, we're serving them a good nutritious meal. Look at what we have. You know we we've got the we've got the green beans. And we've got the mashed potatoes. I like mashed potatoes. I like green beans. My wife made them last night. And here we have whatever the entree might be, and and, and this is it. Well, okay, that, that's wonderful to say you've served it, but then if you go back and you look at the trash can afterwards and you see all the green beans and two-thirds of the mashed potatoes there, you, you have to figure out that happy medium. Otherwise, we're not accomplishing, you know, anything. Let's talk to Paul in Milwaukee. Paul, you're on WTMJ. <laughs> Hi there. Hi, Paul. What do you think? They're going to pick up the kids from right now. Um, my kids go to and they haven't taken a uh, hot lunch all year long. It's purely a, a monetary thing. I know two years ago, what pre-COVID, they had Milwaukee MPS had a, like an executive chef who was young and hip and serving them all sorts of vegan options and exciting new meals, and the kids loved doing hot lunch. And now they just said it's it's prepackaged microwave, right? Stuff. Garbage that even let the dog eat. So I, I think it's purely a monetary thing. Um, and my daughter is one of the kids, you know, leading the charge. Uh huh. Yeah, I'm sorry, Paul. Your your cell phone is cutting out there on us. But I, yeah, I mean, I, again, I you, it's got to be stuff that the kids will eat. And and I again, I appreciate that there's got to be limits on it. You got to control the menu, Jeff. I have a child in MPS. The biggest issue is they overcook the vegetables and the rest of the food, and it has no flavor. We end up packing a lunch most days. Um, yeah, I, I think that there's. I think that there's, you know, an an issue in in that, and you have to just recognize that if we're going to spend the money to do this, let's do it right. Heidi in Heartland. Heidi, you're on WTMJ. Hi, thanks for taking my call. Sure. Um, I am a lunch lady. I'm a lunch lady in the Heartland area in Lake Country, and uh, I'm new to the job, but um, I'm really, I love our menu. We have a great menu for the kids. Um, they get anything from a breakfast day with a egg and cheese omelet. Um, they always have to have a vegetable, a meat, and a, a fruit of some kind, or fruit or a vegetable, and a grain. Um, and then they right now they get free lunch if they meet that criteria. Mm-hmm. Um, I cut up all the fruits and vegetables for the for the lunches, and um, we have you know a great variety. I have blueberries and. Oranges, bananas, and cucumbers. The kids love apples. And now, so, do you make you uh, make all I, yours I at the school? We, is all your stuff made? You, you don't get it shipped in from somewhere else. Is all your stuff pr- made at the school? Um, for the most part, yeah. yes. There is some things that are pre-made, like the taco meat. I think sure. is you know ground meat. It's cooked, and sure, uh, we have Taco Tuesday, so the kids love that. Um, we make our own pizzas. Mm-hmm. We have a deli sure. bar, so we can make them deli sandwiches. It's really great. Um, do you have much problems with waste, or do the kids pretty much they get to pick what they want and then they eat it, and not not a huge amount yep, of food? Yeah, every day. I would say the waste is minimal. Um, they they get to pick every morning. They pick what they want, and then we count it all up and make it uh, make a little extra in case anybody wants seconds. Got it. So, so it can be done. Oh, yeah. thank, thanks for the call, Heidi. I, I appreciate it. And I guess that's that, see that's just the message. And obviously, there's an issue going on because the you know the kids are 
that the kids are saying, we, we find this stuff to be inedible. All I know is if we're going to spend all this money on it, you, you don't want to have the waste. If you've got kids that need to have nutritious meals, you want to make sure they're eating it, not throwing it away, and then stopping off at the Quickie Mart on the way home and filling up on sugary stuff. I'm just saying you got to be smarter, not work cheaper, just be smarter. And it sounds like that's something that MPS could learn from. Back with more in just a minute. This is Jeff Wagner. Jane, did you ever watch Seinfeld? Were you a fan of the Seinfeld show? I was not. You were the one. There wasn't. Huh? Yes, right. I'm the outlier. Well, no, that, that's fine. It, actually, I, I like. It was one of those shows where, when it was first on, I, I, I thought it was going to. I thought it was funny, but I didn't think it was going to have legs. I thought it was v- just too topical, too set in its time, and too New York based and stuff. And I, I freely admit I was wrong. Twenty years later, it, it still is popular. The reason I was going to ask is that Estelle Harris, who played. Jason Alexander, the George George's character, mother. his mother, you know, she passed away at the age of 93. 93. And, but, but the really amazing thing is, what, you know, everybody knows her from that show. She was actually, in all the years it ran, she was only in like 27 episodes. No kidding. Right, you know, so, I mean, it, it's not like, I mean, of the, however, what do they make, like 24, 25 a year time, of the 200 episodes wow. or whatever they make, she was only in 27 episodes. Talk about creating this, like, indelible character. Larger than life for such a for such a small-sized person. Uh, she certainly had a big personality. Do you know what her other claim to fame was that maybe made her perhaps even more famous than George's mother in, uh, in uh, Seinfeld? I do. And that would be? She was Mrs. Potato Head. She was Mrs. Potato Head. No. <laughs> <laughs> and she was great. Okay. And a complete different character yeah. from from George's mother. Well, that was, I saw, um, I was a big fan of Don Rickles. And, of course, Don Rickles w- was Mr. Potato Head. And, and that, that whole thing opened him up to, you know, if, if you grew up of a certain age, you know, Don Rickles and his TV shows and being on The Tonight Show and things like that. But then... Then that that whole Mr. Potato Head, and then that that in Toy Story, that just created this entire second career for this guy. It was amazing. Yeah, the the power of animated films, I think, is is wonderful. Yeah, Estelle Harris passed away at the age of ninety three. Yeah, only twenty seven episodes of Seinfeld to create that kind of indelible character. And she was she started much later in life. She started acting, from what I understand, much later in life after her kids were in school. She had three children, and she was married. And it was a little bit later on that uh, that she really got got big in her career. Gosh, that Mrs. Potato Head was years after Seinfeld, wasn't it? Oh, yeah, right, exactly. And and right, she right she did like I think you're exactly right. She did some some small stuff and, yeah. and all, but right, but really got serious like later in life. Just shows there, there's always there's always there's still time for both of us. <laughs> <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> <laughs> Something to look forward to. Yes, when when Jane and I start our second careers or our third careers or fourth careers or whatever. I'll voice Mrs. Potato Head. I do that in a heartbeat. Well, you've got great acting chops. I mean, you you are every year when we do our holiday radio show for people who don't know you are the you are the star oh i disagree with that i'm just the biggest ham <laughs> well that 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 could be but it's 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 worth as far as i'm concerned it's worth the price of admission to come out and see jane matinaire perform when we come back we've been talking about dumb ideas on today's program i've got another one i want to discuss with you stick around It's so nice to be back in the studio, and it's so nice to be with you. Thank you for spending your Monday afternoon with me. Tomorrow, there is an election. Now, it, it's one of these, as often happens in the April, nonpartisan elections. Um, what the, the races 
and the interests are going to vary depending on where you live. In Milwaukee, as we've been talking about all day and for the last several weeks, you've got an election for, for mayor. And in Milwaukee, what happens is that typically once Milwaukeeans elect a mayor, that person stays in office for a decade or, or two decades. So it's a very big choice. Um, in other jurisdictions, well, there's not necessarily as many high-profile races. Now, around here, you've got school board races, and believe me, I understand school board races are important, but they don't generally take the, the high profile that a mayor's race would take. You'll have you know, seats on common council or county boards that are going to be up. You're going to have judicial races, unfortunately. Um, particularly in Milwaukee County, you, you don't have many, if any, contested judicial races, which is, again, one of the disappointing things. We always complain about, gee, you know, how do we hold these judges accountable for the silly sentences or whatever? And then the truth is, you know, judges pretty much get reelected without opposition. There, There is a contested in our uh, listening area. There is a contested court of appeals race that's going on. But the April elections, in some cases, are, I think, test runs for what's going to happen in the higher turnout races. They're going to roll around when we have the primaries in the early fall. And then, of course, when you have the, you know, the off-year partisan elections that are going to occur in November. So a, a lot of discussion has occurred over the course of the last year and a half about about elections. And I understand that there's some people who continue to believe that the election was stolen and that Donald Trump actually won. I'm I'm not in that camp. I haven't seen any evidence of fraud. I there's people like me who believe that um, some of the some of the what I will call best practices were not followed and and we need to get some sort of uniform way of dealing with things like drop boxes and stuff like that but that doesn't mean that the result wasn't invalid it just means that we, we need to figure out exactly what the rules are and then make sure everybody plays by the rules but there's there's one one aspect of of elections that's been getting getting a little bit of push and I will tell you honestly I don't understand it Hand-counting ballots. Hand-counting ballots. Now, for most people in this country, you vote in one of two ways. You get your, your ballot... And you take, you go into the little voting cubicle and you have the, the pen or the pencil and you mark your choices. Then you take that ballot and then you go and you feed it into the machine where it is tabulated by the machine. The ballot is physically in there, but at some point in time, somebody pushes a button, I'm oversimplifying this, and, and it, the machine reads it. When you put that ballot in the machine, if there is a problem with your ballot, it will spit it out. So you have a chance to to correct it. But that that's the way, and I think, I think that's the way most voting is done in Wisconsin. The other way that people vote is on these electronic touch screens. I've never done that myself, but I, I know in lots of jurisdictions across the country, it's it's just like you know you you go and you 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 push the buttons like you're I don't know um you know ordering something at a fast food kiosk or something like that. You you push those those different buttons. So you've got the the touch screen voting, or you've got the actually you fill out the, the ballot, but you put it in and it's tabulated. In Certain very, very small communities across the country, including a couple in Wisconsin, that's not how they do it. They, they, they use old-fashioned paper ballots, which are then tabulated. 
Our number is 855-616-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. There's an article that caught my attention in the Washington Post, and it dovetails on something. I know that there were a handful of candidates in Wisconsin who are, again, not convinced that Joe Biden really won the Wisconsin election. And without going down that rabbit hole, one of the things they are pushing for is to eliminate the, the automatic tabulation of ballots, essentially saying that all ballots need to be hand counted. Our number is 855-616-1620. That is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. My comment to this, three words. What a nightmare. If you think we wait a long time to get the results of elections now, can you imagine what would happen if we had to hand count thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of ballots across the state? And and I guess my other question would be, to what end would, would that would that accomplish? I mean, why would you do that? Is there really any sort of serious concern that these voting machines are being co-opted or that when you push the button at the polling place and you tabulate the results, that the results are, are wrong? And and if there is, I don't know, some sort of error, that then maybe you go back and then maybe you start tabulating by, by hand. But th- this idea that's being pushed by some people, that we need to do away with electronic counting of ballots. To me, it makes absolutely no sense. It's like saying, let, let's go back to, I don't know, let, let's go back to 1920 before we, we had all this. 855-616-1620, that's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Candidly, this push for hand counting of ballots, I think I think the, the possibility of Error, I'm not saying fraud, but the possibility of error is so much greater from that than the system that we have now that it makes no sense. 855-616-1620, we discuss. Jeff, in some parts of Adams County, you place your ballot in a wooden box. Yeah, actually, here's the deal. I actually have the numbers on this. Um, Across the country, about 483,000 registered voters, which is... 0.2% of all registered voters in the country live in jurisdictions where ballots are counted by hand. Most live in tiny communities in New England or Wisconsin. For example, in Wisconsin, there are 320 jurisdictions where they hand count ballots. Now, this is in the city of Milwaukee. This is like a, a... a part, a, a polling place in Adams County, for example. There's 322 of them, um, 117,000 registered voters in hand-counted jurisdictions, about 3% of the registered voters statewide. Now, you got to understand, I'm not arguing that for, for those places, the, the small places where there's only a handful of voters, that you, you need to spend the money bringing in electronic voting machines and things of the like. I, I, the, the, apparently, the hand-counting system works fine there. I am arguing that to say to the rest of the state, you know, the other 97% of the population, that here we're going to we're going to require all the ballots in the rest of the state to be counted by hand, that's, what's the word I'm looking for? That That's that's dumb. <laughs> I mean, it, it just is. One of our texters is saying, well, if we're going to do that, does that mean we're going to have to use an abacus? Well, I think that's a fair, you know, comment about that. I mean, what you have is... You have this technology that is out there, and I see. I remember. 
I'm not sure if I told this story on the air before. When I ran for statewide office in 94, back um, at the time I lived in Whitefish Bay, and Whitefish Bay used the, the old-style voting machines where you went in, you threw the lever, the curtain closed, and then you had the switches, and you pulled the switches down to see who you wanted to vote for. And I remember this, this is really it, – it, it was a cool kind of thing. You see your name. You know, you're on a statewide ballot there, you know, and you, you pull the switch, and that's it. And I remember after that election, it would have been – November of 94, um, Whitefish Bay, I think, moved to the electronic voting machines, getting away from those manual ones. And they were looking to sell all the, the those big old voting machines they had. And one of the ones that they had on it was, I mean, they still had it in the last election, the November of 94 election. And I remember I wanted to buy it because I thought this would be kind of cool, you know, that, you know, you got your name on there, it'd be a great keepsake. And that was one where my, my wife looked at me and you said, okay, this is this huge machine. Explain to me what we're going to do with it. Where in the house is it going to go? And I said, well, maybe the kind of the formal living room. And then, I, again, I, I got that look that all you women learn from your, your, your moms, that, that look that I married a moron. I, I got that kind of look. So never, never bought that giant, you know, 400-pound voting machine or whatever it was, but always kind of regretted not making that purchase. But the bottom line of all this is, you know, technology changes. You went from doing that to, you know, going to the electronic voting Voting machines, and again, I'm not convinced that there's any sort of widespread sort of problem. And certainly here in Wisconsin, where in almost all instances, if not all instances, beyond the hand counting in the small jurisdictions, you you actually have the physical ballot. So if something seems to be irregular, gee, it's funny. This is Waukesha County, and all of a sudden, ninety percent of the people voted for Joe Biden. Not that that happened, but then you can always go back and you can look at the ballots and you can see if there was some sort of irregularity and figure it out um, while there's still time to do it. Do you need to go to hand counting? No, and. As somebody who appreciates finality, can you imagine a statewide election if we went to hand counting for all the different ballots that are on a rate on the race? My gosh, you know, it, you'd be halfway into the next term before you had an accurate count. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to find out what John and Melissa have on their minds for Wisconsin's afternoon news. Hang around.